Hello, it's David Shirley from Irish Funds. So we return to the Irish Funds online annual conference for this episode, this time for the panel discussion entitled ESG, From Green Shoots to Full Bloom, which first aired on Thursday the 20th of May. This is moderated by Johnny Madamore of First Derivatives, and the panel features a discussion with Tara Shine of Change by Degrees, Sean McHale of Bank of Ireland, Joanne McIntyre of IQEQ, and Anna Driggs of ICI Global. I hope you enjoy this episode and check back soon for more great content. Hello, good afternoon, everybody. Um, my name is Johnny Matamore, and today I'm going to chair the ESG panel discussion. Um, we're hoping to make it quite relaxed, a very friendly, engaging, conversational approach. And we're very fortunate to have a good eclectic mix of five different people with very diverse backgrounds. And we're going to have a quick fire series of questions. We formatted five questions for this to get the debate going with the panel. And at the end of it, we'll give it uh, an open uh, Q&A with the audience. Uh, hopefully we've put together a diverse enough um, set of questions so that it will touch on all the different interests in the very wide audience we're appealing to. And the very first thing we'll do is introduce ourselves. So I'm Johnny. Uh, I'm, I head up the, globally the risk and sustainability uh, business at uh, First Derivatives. And my background is diverse one in investment banking in emerging markets and bond trading, and then in asset management, and more recently specializing in designing the next generation of risk systems for buy side and sell side firms. Uh, and I'll introduce first my colleague Tara. Hi everybody, good evening. Uh, hi to you all on this stormy day. Um, I am co-founder and director of Change by Degrees, a sustainability business based here in Kinsale. Um, I've been here for the last three years. Previous to that, I was eight years as um, special advisor to the Mary Robinson Foundation Climate Justice. And that built on about 20 years working at the international level on climate and environment um, as a climate negotiator and advisor. Um, and I stay involved in that world and can tell you a little bit more around what to, what to expect for COP26 and the UN process later on. Thank you. Perfect. And now my colleague, Sean. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Sean McHale and I'm the head of institutional uh, strategy, sustainability and growth at Bank of Ireland Global Markets. Uh, previous to that, I was the head of institutional business at Danske Bank, and I'm also a member of the steering committee for the Green Team Network. Excellent. And now we have my colleague, Joanne. Thanks, Johnny. Hi, everyone. I'm Joanne McIntaggart. I'm the managing director for IQEQ. IQEQ is a leading investor group um, where we focus on bringing our global technical experts together with our client know-how to deliver for our client portfolio. Uh, and we have just launched our fund administration business in Ireland, Johnny. Thank you very much. And now my colleague, Anna. Uh, yes, uh, hello everyone. Uh, good afternoon. I am Anya Driggs. I am Director and Associate Chief Counsel at ACI Global, which is an international arm of the Investment Company Institute, a global trade association representing regulated funds. We have our headquarters in Washington, D.C., but we also have offices um, in London, Brussels, and uh, Hong Kong. By background, by background, I'm a lawyer. Um, I, early on, I was a retirement policy lawyer, but now I work on EU policy issues for regulated funds, and now it's probably 100% of the time, or maybe even 150 sometimes, 
on all things ESG and sustainability. Perfect. Excellent. And we are spot on on timing. Now, we're going to go to our very first question. And we want to throw open the floodgates here. So it's a very open-ended question. And it is, what are the big themes that ESG raises for asset managers? And I'd like to point that first to Tara, if I may. Yeah, pointed at me who is not an investor, um, but maybe to give you some context around how some of the rest of the world is looking as at you at investors and particularly how those of us in the climate community look at you and what we expect from you. So uh, this year, something called COP26 will take place. It's the annual summit of the climate change uh, convention. This year it takes place in Glasgow in Scotland under the presidency of the United Kingdom. And it's the first chance that all of the, the countries that are members of the Paris Agreement have to come back to the table. It was to be five years, now six years on since the Paris Agreement was signed, and they're to come back and evaluate what progress they've made in delivering you know, scaled up climate action. And they're going to say what more they will do to increase their national commitments to get us closer to the 1.5, well below two degree targets, temperature targets that are set in the Paris Agreement. And so it's a time for momentum building. It's a time for more ambition. And that is for you as well. The um, presidency of uh, the COP, the UK, have four priorities that they want to achieve. One is around making sure that we set net zero targets for mid-century so that we can achieve the 1.5 degree goal. And that I think many of you as investors and many of the companies you seek to invest in are also doing. The second is all in the area of climate risk, adaptation and nature. So adapting and protecting our natural systems. The third is around mobilizing climate finance. And the fourth is how we all work together and having solidarity around this as a global problem. And so it is around this mobilizing of finance that you as investors are key. Um, we need to finance the, the technology and the innovation needed to, to change the way that we do business and the way we live on, on, on the earth. We know we have to half global emissions in the next 10 years, so that's a, a huge injection of, of pace that's needed. And we need um, private funds to come and build on the public money that's going to be mobilised and use that to invest in the climate solutions that we need. So as with everybody else, investors are being looked at at the moment in terms of what more will you do? What extra can you do? What will you bring in terms of new announcements, commitments to the table um, in and around the moment of COP26? Um, and so it's more critical than ever to be having these kinds of conversations and to be making ESG part of everyday investment life, um, it's definitely what we all look to you for. The, the objective of the Paris Agreement is to keep warming to safe levels, to adapt and to make sure that all financial flows are consistent with the low carbon climate resilient world. So you're very much part of this conversation. That's certainly big themes. <laughs> so uh, uh, extending that then um, into the asset management world, uh, I think I'll turn to Anna and say, with that type of background, what are the implications in the, in the whole spectrum of these big themes? It's actually, um, it, it kind of builds well on what Tara said. And I think Merit McGuinness spoke earlier at the conference today about the European uh, Commission's agenda for you know, uh, this EU ESG sustainability framework. 
I think EU is uh, very ambitious and probably ahead of the rest of the world in terms of building out actually legal and regulatory framework to drive financing towards sustainable investments, which of course presents opportunities for our industry and significant opportunities, but it, you know, because you can offer new products, you can sell more existing products if they meet these new requirements, but these opportunities come with new responsibilities and with new challenges because of these multiple legislative and regulatory pieces. And I think this community is very familiar with many of them, but just to mention four, which is again, I think it's so unusual for this part of the world, you literally have different building blocks that supposed at some point to converge and so that we can meet, uh, the Europe can meet its green goals and its Paris uh, commitments. And I just mentioned four and we can touch upon on them later on in the conversation. One uh, you're all familiar with as it presents both an opportunity and a compliance challenge is the sustainable finance disclosure regulation. We'll be complying that with that at level two starting this January. Then you have a taxonomy uh, regulation, which in addition to being a classification system and the two pieces kicked in, right, for climate mitigation and climate adaptation for next year, but also as products, you'll have to disclose your taxonomy alignment, how green the products are. And the other two, I think, especially relevant for this conference, are changes to the usage and MIFI two frameworks, where you have to build in the sustainability requirements into your business. And I think particularly MIFID 2 would be of interest and of um, and it's an opportunity, but it's also would require quite a bit of work from our community to revise the, um, you, you know, the current arrangements because you have to adapt or top up the current uh, suitability assessment to incorporate sustainability requirements of your clients and then to make sure that you offer the products that match up to those sustainability requirements. So I would say that those are the themes. You have both opportunities and the challenges and a lot of work ahead. Okay, perfect. And using that thread um, of the big themes and opportunities, I, I'd like to ask Sean what his thoughts are on these things. Yeah, thanks, Johnny. I think following on from what Anna said, I really see um, it as a huge opportunity um, not only for asset managers, but for the fund industry in general. Uh, and that obviously, you know, the move to the low carbon economy is one of the most significant transformative changes that we're going to see over the next 30 years or so. And I think that brings with it a wealth of opportunities uh, for asset managers in particular. Uh, I suppose most notably is it, it generates a new source of funds to manage and new mandates, which in turn will lead to new products. Uh, and obviously that comes with the regulation that Anna mentioned. I think secondly, then we're going to see an actual sea change in the investment process as ESG is embedded uh, into the asset allocation decision-making frameworks. Uh, and with that, obviously, uh, we'll generate new opportunities. Of course, uh, the, as Tara mentioned, uh, the move uh, and the pivot of finance required is something in the region of 3 trillion a year out to 2050 and that. So again, that in itself generates huge, significant uh, investment opportunities for the asset management industry. And then I think finally, uh, we're going to see uh, data used in a very, very different way going forward. Uh, and equally, I, I think it's a great opportunity to redefine um, how the asset management community engages with stakeholders. And again, I'd expect to see that change from where it's been maybe over the last 20 years or so. Oh, thanks very much, Sean. But if, we, if we take those big themes now, um, we, we've got both governmental action, we've got regulatory, we've got commercial opportunities. Um, we're probably all in agreement that things are happening fast um, after a long period of uh, resistance to some of the changes. It is a very fast moving environment. 
And I, I think that's the core thing about the second question, which we'd like to ask here. How fast is the pace of change? Is it illusory or is it real? Uh, and that's across everything from tech, regulation, etc., and behavior. Um, so I think I'd like to ask Joanne um, her views on the pace of change. Sure, Johnny. Thanks very much. Um, I think we, we all agree that it's very fast. You know, Anna alluded to SFDR coming in there in December 2019. And very quickly, we had to look at transparency requirements and disclosure for our investors on our websites, looking at pre-contractual documents. And that was all before March um, just gone. There's a huge volume of reporting now that's effective, as Anna said, coming into 2022. And, you know, there is quite a condensed time frame. We're already nearly halfway through 2021. And I think there's a lot for us to do as an asset management industry to have consensus across the data actually, the data requirements, because we have to look at it quite quickly in advance of January 2022. In relation to the um, principal adverse impact statement in particular, you know, there's 50 KPIs that managers have to assess there. 32 of those are mandatory. So it's about looking at those, considering how we're going to calculate those. And as, as we've already slightly touched on, that requires an awful lot of collation of, of uh, significant amounts of data. In advance of January 2022 as well, we have to consider annexes to pre-contractual documents. We have to look at further necessary website disclosures and also look at the periodic reporting and building out that reporting and what that has to look like. You touched on, Johnny, the stakeholders a bit there and, and, and the reporting aspect. And I suppose a lot of the audience today are used to regulatory reporting or even doing some investor reporting. The difference with this reporting is it's across everybody. So it's across all key stakeholders. So it's really important to understand the key drivers for each uh, stakeholder involved and what it is that they need to see and the appropriate reporting for those individuals. And that's a big ask uh, on man management companies and other investors in, in, involved in, in the underlying assets because you're looking at the consistency of reporting um, across each of those measures. Yeah. And us, as man, um, you know, involved in the industry, have to look at the harmonisation of that data, and, and there's a lot to do um, in, in order to kind of um, validate the source of the data, looking at the reliability of it, um, and looking at the methodology involved in um, gathering all that data together. So it will involve putting in multidisciplinary teams as well, because initially looking at the strategy, uh, as Shauna said, assessing the different risks and then building teams around to deliver the reporting around those aspects. And I think we're all aware that there will be um, data scrubbing required because there's a lack of consistency across all um, data sources. It, 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 so we it have is to get. Sorry, it, it is quite astonishing yeah. actually being asked all of this around the taxonomy and the structure and the, the hygiene yeah. quality on data at such a fast pace. I mean, that's probably for Anna as well. I mean, you've yeah. alluded to that taxonomy. Anna, do you want to comment a little bit on um, taxonomy and the alignment and how you do that in an environment where you, you really do not have much time for experimentation? Yes, so I'll just mention, yes, exactly, taxonomy alignment, just as an example, how fast change, the change is and what is expected. 
And maybe before I give an example, I just want to mention the point that we always hear from the European policymakers. They know, they understand what they're requiring is absolutely, possibly sometimes very unrealistic to accomplish. But I think what they what they say is we have different building blocks, right? We have asset manager disclosure, we have product disclosure, we have corporate issue disclosure, we have taxonomy. We understand that we got the sequencing maybe out of order because we've got the asset manager disclosure done first without the corporate issue disclosure. But what the EU is saying is saying we cannot wait. The timing is just of the essence. We have to keep moving forward. You do your best, get in there. And just to give you an example, I think sometimes when people look at the industry and saying, maybe you're whining a little too much, it is actually, <laughs> the issue is real. So taxonomy alignment, right? This is for products that invest in something green. They will have to show that to what extent they uh, uh, aligned with the taxonomy as of January 2022. Yeah. And we just submitted a consultation response on the consultation just finished last week, meaning it would go to the supervisory authorities who will have to evaluate all the industry input. And then they will have to provide their input to the European Commission and then European Commission will adopt the rule. So considering it's May and the process just sort of from the industry uh, started, yeah. we probably will see the rule um, maybe at the earliest in September, but the compliance has to be in January. So the idea is, and we've heard it from the policymakers, you probably have to start that alignment and predicting your taxonomy alignment now, even though you don't know yeah. what the rule will look like, collect the data, do your best, basically. Because we're facing that um, dilemma. We, we, we have the imperative to move fast, but we need some degree of flexibility for the industry to actually absorb it and, and implement it properly. Just going fast and throwing any old rubbish out there is not to anyone's advantage. Okay, okay well, 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 we'll conclude that question there because it's, a, it's an interesting segue. The taxonomy drives an awful lot of interpretation um, of whether or not uh, an asset is likely to appreciate or depreciate in value. And that we, um, we've been looking a lot. It's a question particularly close to my activities in the whole risk management world and how we're bringing sustainability together there. So uh, I'd like to throw out the third question, which is how will ESG in impact the price of assets? Um, and I'd like to address that to Sean, if I may. Sure. Um, for me in the public markets, uh, I believe we'll see an increased demand uh, for both equity and debt um, for those companies uh, who have a high degree of alignment to the taxonomy uh, and that. And I think in turn, then that will lead uh, companies to um, increase their taxonomy alignment over time uh, and that. So first of all, you'll have the availability of debt and then you'll obviously have the repricing and that. Equally on the bank lending side, uh, I think that um, with the um, proposed requirements uh, for banks to report on their green asset ratio and that, again, uh, that will lead for, to competition for those loans uh, which are deemed green um, high taxonomy alignment, uh, and of course, uh, which will bring the corresponding uh, pricing and margin pressures uh, that one would expect to see. Of course, uh, the space in terms of sustainable finances is evolution at uh, quite a pace, and that there's over uh, $1 trillion equivalent of uh, sustainable debt uh, now in the market and that, and the products uh, continue to evolve in that. So we've seen you know, a, a huge increase in the use of sustainably linked loans and social bonds, uh, because of COVID uh, and so forth. So again, uh, I would expect to see that trend continue, uh, particularly obviously post the stress tests that the Bank of England and the ECB are due to conduct in the coming years. 
I would like to take the opportunity to comment on this myself. Um, the risk management we're, we're doing in the market, um, no regulator wants a financial institution to change their risk infrastructure. What they want them to do is to use the existing plumbing I've found and develop scenarios so they can be informed of where the gaps are, especially in the, you know, I know this is Irish funds, but in the banking system, uh, in particular on capital, but that feeds through directly to you know, how does how do the banks syndicate? How do they distribute bonds, equity? How do they support secondary market activities in those? And that's critical for funds for the integrity of the ecosystem of the buy and sell side. And um, we, we've been classifying um, the the major impacts into three buckets. Number one is what will happen on carbon taxation as a global policy. Uh, any type of taxation will lead to a haircut on future cash flows for those um, firms that are actually off the trajectory curve for decarbonisation. The second is, in parallel, uh, as well as any ta um, carbon taxation impact on their cash flows, they're going to have to be investing in OPEX and CAPEX to actually achieve the transition. So there could be three major whammies here hitting future cash flow modelling. And we, we expect that after COP26, when we get clearer direction on them, the transition path and also on them carbon um, taxation policy, that there's going to be a sudden wave in attempting to um, revalue um, global assets. And that'll have two impacts. The size of that haircut will both cause a revaluation net present value on these assets, but also a re-ranking of assets. Um, so it's, it could be an incredibly um, complex uh, as well as um, a disturbing phase for the market with a, with a lot of noise for a lot of time. Now, uh, I think that will lead neatly into um, the impact it will have on different types of firms, um, large listed firms versus smaller listed and the unlisted SMEs. Um, I, I think I'd like to take our ideas about price impact therefore uh, and offer them to Joanne for comments uh, around uh, the different types of asset classes. Sure. Um, as you said, Johnny, um, it isn't going to be cheap in terms of for companies complying um, with the ESG reporting and what's necessary around that. Um, you know, there'll be the additional processes that we've touched on, the technology that's going to be required and also upskilling people so that, you know, they have a familiarity with what's required and, and also have an understanding what they need to do. Large organisations obviously are naturally going to be subject to the full suite of organisational requirements, but smaller entities um, should be eligible for certain exemptions. Um, so that will make a difference naturally on the investment required compared to the different size of the organisation involved. I know Irish Funds did an estimate first, and it's probably worth calling it out here, that for a mid-sized manager, um, it can, it's going to cost them in the region of 250,000 to 600,000 just to kind of be prepared for the ESG data that they're going to have to um, pull together. And for a larger fund manager, that could grow up to 1.5 million. So as you said, Johnny, it's going to have quite a significant impact perhaps on returns when you look at the spend that's going to be required to um, remain up to speed with it. And there is, I, I suppose, as we've touched on already, there is that absence of standardisation um, on the data. So, you know, there, there will be an increase of spend just to kind of come up with the standards required from, from the regime. 
But maybe looking at the opportunity side then, obviously, because with every new regulation, a new obligation, there's always an opportunity. And I think what we'll see more is, you know, startup companies in the tech space in particular, and even opportunities for companies like IQEQ with our uh, tech solution that we have uh, for managers to be able to gather their data around ESG uh, and looking at the different type of perhaps support that mm -hmm. these types of vendors can offer in um, the area of digitalization around it, you know. Um, and I suppose we have been lucky um, to be selected by the commission originally to kind of be part of this strategy. And that was on the basis of efforts that we've made so far as part of IFS 2020. And I, I think everyone, obviously, more Tara and Anna in particular, and yourself, and and Sean, Johnny, we're all behind the green initiative and um, the sustainability agenda. And I think it will lead to opportunities post COVID um, nineteen in terms of trying to be really part of this and driving the transition to a green, low carbon, sustainable economy. And it can only result in in opportunities. I suppose the other area. Johnny is the the opportunity to upskill our staff and that is giving other players in the market the opportunity to support us in upskilling our staff naturally as well. May I ask on the skills actually I mean there, there are different areas some some things are mandatory some are voluntary yeah. um I wondered who, who could comment on the voluntary versus mandatory Sean would you, would you be interested in commenting on that? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, obviously, the non-financial reporting directive is there today. Uh, that's soon to be replaced by the CSRD directive, uh, which goes much, much further in that. So uh, the non-financial reporting directive today covers approximately 11,000 uh, firms, public interest firms, uh, whereas the new directive will extend to about approximately 50,000 firms and that. So it'll go much, much further in terms of firms in scope. Uh, and equally, uh, we'll speak to a much more detail and that which is a direct response to the asset management community need for good quality data uh, and that equally and sometimes we hear that firms say well I'm too small it won't apply to me and that um, the good news is um, whilst the directive may not apply to you now you will be caught in other ways in terms of having to disclose because as it's been built into all financial firms risk framework you're going to get asked questions on it because the banks have to report insurance companies have to report and of course the asset managers have to report and equally, and I suppose more, most importantly, is when you do business under scope three, now the entire supply chain um, is under scope. So we have lots of examples where multinationals are now asking very, very small firms who they do business with to explain their environmental footprint. Um, but more importantly, to explain what action they're taking to minimize that footprint uh, and what are their policies uh, around it. So for me, there's no getting away from it. And I think the simple, yeah, there's no hiding. There's no hiding. And I think the simple <laughs> message is, is to start to embrace it and to develop out your policies, uh, to use a science-based approach, uh, and and actually use it, uh, you know, as an opportunity to grow your business. Well, look, on that note, I, I think it's fair to say that you know, this, this isn't a gradual change. This isn't um, a, a necessarily a voluntary change. This looks like a fundamental shift in business practices, uh, and that has rather gargantuan implications uh, around the globe. So. I would like to turn to maybe the an open-ended uh, final question for you all. Every single project I've ever been involved with and every business I've been involved with, nearly every in every occasion, the question is always, come on, I know it's tough, but what does success look like? 
So here's your open-ended question to close this, this session out. What, in each of your view, constitutes success in this space? And that's first to Anna. I think this is a very hard question, but I think maybe I'll say what's the, the beginning of the success uh, for um, maybe for asset managers, uh, you know, uh, and I think it's the clarity of vision. You know, I think it will start from the top and because some larger companies may be able to have a broader goals, but if you're a smaller company, I think it has to be very clear, what is it that you're trying to accomplish? And then build, go build from there, build the products from there, communications from there, and you know, in the compliance will come into place as well. So I think it's the clarity of vision. Right. A stake in the ground for clarity of vision. Excellent. Yes, yes. And Tara, your view of the world. Yeah, so Anna said, Anna said at the beginning that what we were aiming for, say, with the EU directives was that for sustainability, to build sustainability into every business. And I guess that's what our priority is in Change by Degree. So we're in the business of helping all of those companies that you as investors or your, the companies you invest in, these may be the suppliers to them, want to access their goods and services. Um, and so just as Sean said, their businesses and their business models also have to be sustainable. So this is something that trickles right down along the train. Um, and so what, what we're doing is working with all kinds of companies in Ireland to help them to have sustainability strategies, to undertake kind of um, carbon and sustainability audits, to engage their stakeholders and their employees and to communicate and report effectively on what they're doing. And that applies to all our SMEs in Ireland, um, all our companies that are, are significantly larger right now, not, not investors, but also part of this same ecosystem that we have to grow so that there are businesses to invest in. And so for me, success looks like a future where right down along the supply chain, um, sustainability is being built into what businesses are doing. And not as, a, not as an add-on, not as just a side policy or strategy, but as something that is fundamental to how the business runs, to how it um, thinks about business continuity and business planning. Um, and that to me is exciting. Um, it, it might sound a little daunting. And as you say, Johnny, the pace of this change may sound a little daunting. But within that, I think are massive opportunities for Irish businesses to, to really get ahead and, and to create like good quality jobs, employment uh, and revenue into the future. That's excellent. That's a great, great vision of success. And now, Joanne, your view of success in the world in here. Sure, Johnny. Um, it, uh, as Anna's mentioned, I think it, it is a top-down approach. So success is strong governance at a board level and the board understanding the key risks around this, understanding the climate risks, understanding the liability that could be ensued if they weren't to get this right. And so they need to be bought into this concept. And what's really important about that is they need to then invest in their people to ensure their people understand, as Tara said, it is a trickle down approach to this. But if you don't get it right from the top down, but also the bottom up, you're going to not be able to deliver on it. So I know I touched on it already, but the education of the people throughout each of these organisations is yeah. really critical. And so I know the Institution of Bankers are, have looked at sustainability matrix and where the gaps might be and are building programmes around and that's great and sustainable finance uh, are working with Irish funds to do the same. So I think the education bit, we can't underestimate how much that's going to cost, but how powerful it is 
and um, and how, how important it is to get that success that we have to get through. Along with, I know you're going to say, Johnny, the risk frameworks that have to be put in, but uh, educating the people and having the strong board understanding are, are critical for the success I, of this. I, I think that's a great vision of success. Bring everyone along for the ride. Otherwise, it won't succeed. Sean, your view of the world. Very, very difficult to follow that, uh, Johnny. Um, for me, it's all about turning the strategy into action. And by 2050, being still in business in a low-carbon environment, uh, serving customers. Uh, but along the way, it's really important um, that people use, whether the asset management community use their influence and financial clout to deliver that transition. Um, so for me, it's, it's turning um, good intentions into concrete actions to actually deliver uh, on the Paris Climate Agreement and that. And to me, that means that you, when 2050 comes around, you'll not only have a vibrant business, but a much bigger business uh, with a very satisfied customer base. Right. And to close, before we have questions, here's my view. My number one thing is, if you're going, success is do not fake it. If, you're not, if you don't do it with conviction, don't bother doing it at all. And the other elements of success, you must measure. You can't manage anything without measuring. I know we hear it all the time, but it's true. And be public with those measurements. Don't hide them in case you're worried of missing them. If you miss them and you're doing it with conviction, then you get back on track. That's what I think will be success. And I truly believe that will make companies both profitable and sustainable in every sense of the word. Right. I think we can um, turn to some, um, some questions now. We've got eight minutes remaining. So if everyone's happy, I will take a look at um, some questions. Uh, okay, let's have a look what's in that. So one of the current challenges uh, for, um, for asset managers, having to get their pre-contractual disclosures scrutinized. Hmm, so a very long question actually. So here's <laughs> first thing one. Um, understandable to the regulator, uh, and the investors too, comprehensive enough to cover SFDR. So do you have suggestions on how you make it comprehensible enough to cover SFDR requirements and understandable to the regulator? Maybe I'll take this one. <laughs> so okay. It sounds like a very legal question. Uh, and then I'll take it now because I know the answer, but it's just acknowledging that this is probably one of the biggest challenges that we see in the SFDR compliance and um, maybe like to mention, and it's probably not that helpful, but there is an overriding concept in the SFDR that your statements have, can, you know, cannot be misleading. So you pretty much have to just, and there are specific requirements. So I think SFDR is also very granular and telling you what you need to do. But I think at a high level, it's, it's kind of like explaining basically what are you trying to accomplish and how you're trying to accomplish it. I think the challenge with SFDR though, it's a pre-contract, you know, like it's the requirements of pre-contractual document. And it's something that um, it targeted to the end investor. So not in, in a way to the consultants and the people who specialize in crunching and pulling out the most technical data. So while the SFDR requirements, they try to create a lot of information with good intentions, but it's probably a little bit too much for the pre-contractual information. So I think it's sort of the challenges built in, in the law. And I think it's just, um, doing your best and I think maybe with time it will evolve and people will realize how much or how little to include we've made a lot of comments on um, this point when SFDR was going through legislative process when the SFDR RTS was under the consultation saying 
make sure you, you reach the right balance for requiring information. Something should be in the prospectus, but something just put the placeholder in, not a placeholder, a cross-reference to a website, you know, so people can go and get more information, create layer disclosure. Uh, I, you know, I, I think SFDR still probably requires uh, quite a bit of information in the pre-contractual information where it's probably gonna be so much that I think a, a regular investor probably will have a hard time understanding everything that's required to be disclosed. But I think the, the, key, the key message is just, it has to be not misleading. At least you have to state your objective, how you're trying to get there and provide some metrics. Okay, ne ne next question. Uh, we've still got a little bit more time. What is the panel's experience so far with managers' classifications between Article 6, R8, or 9? Who's in a good position to take that for the SFDR again? Is that another one for you, Anna? <laughs> I am happy to start. And, you know, I'm sure I think this is, again, one of those questions that every, every single call we have a conference, that's the question, how do you classify the products? And maybe the commission will provide some further guidance, especially on what constitutes an Article 8 product, right? It's a product that promotes an environmental or social characteristic. Um, uh, I think again, I, I think the challenge, I think where some people, you know, article nine products are maybe a little easier because, you know, you have to have sustainable investment as its objective. So the stricter guidelines, but article eight products, I think we'll see, and we've heard this before, maybe some characterizations as the industry settles and the regulator settles on what this means. And maybe to connect it to the MIFID two changes, uh, I think uh, our industry is still digesting what this means, but in, um, while Article 8 seems to have a fairly broad definition for distribution purposes, you really limit it to products you can offer uh, when a person asks for a sustainable product. You can't, it seems like at least initial interpretation, you cannot just offer all uh, Article 8 products. It has to be either a taxonomy aligned product or product with minimum and the sustainable investments under SFDR a product that considers a principal adverse impacts, meaning does the product consider adverse impact of its um, actions on the sustainability factors? So basically, I think it will be, I think the article eight will see the evolution of that product um, as we go along. Joanne, you're nodding. So I think you have to maybe share your view. No, no, I just to totally agree with Jana. Um, you know, I think one is it's 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 quite easy in the sense for Article Nine because it you know there's no grey there. You, you either you're either doing it or you're not, and I think that's the challenge, isn't it? Really. Um, Does that yeah. make people fearsome, uh, Joanne? If, if they go for Article Nine, it might be too constricting. Yeah, I think people I might just shy away from it. No, absolutely, Johnny. Yeah. So could it yeah. just become yeah. redundant almost because nobody in the industry sees it as appealing? Or do you think there may be a few brave souls who go well, after it? I think them, if right? their their strategy is totally supporting sustainability, then they won't be afraid because that's what their product <laughs> offering is. So naturally all day long then there'll be Article Nine because that's the ethos of yep. their strategy and what they what what they support. So it's the old it's it's grayer if it's part of your strategy and then you have to get the balance right. So in that regard, you're more falling into eight, really, aren't you? If you're just yeah. kind of doing a bit of it, um, and that's the challenge. Right. Well, we, we have time for one final question, and it's actually an interesting one because it talks about 
um, the progress under environmental, under ESG, seems to be quite well understood and there seems to be a lot of progress. But um, uh, applying the same type of scientific approach to societal issues clearly is, uh, is a lot more challenging. Um, would the panel agree that whilst E is progressing, what could we do um, to progress S? Is that a, that's I a tough could, one. I could start on that one, Johnny. I think the question also relates to what about the poor G too? So yes. I think a lot of the work that, that I do with, with businesses and organizations is around going back to the very basics of what is sustainability. We do a, an icebreaker where we ask people what colour is sustainability, just to elicit that most people think it's green and it's environmental. And then we spend time unpacking that and saying that it's not and that it is this balance of economic, social and environmental. And it's the getting the balance right. That's the gold in all of this. So I think when I look around, the, many of the larger companies we work with are struggling to kind of connect the dots between their different silos. So they might be doing great work on diversity and inclusion, but it's completely disconnected from the work that they're doing, for example, on environment, car, uh, carbon and climate. Um, and within that, then also, um, to go back to the points made by Joanne on education, because this is critical for governance, is does anybody understand or have any literacy in this, particularly at the level of the board? So board level literacy around what ESG is, around what sustainability is, around what climate risk is, is really critical to us actually being able to um, deliver on the promise that ESG holds. So I think that we have a lot of work to do in the next five years or so to help even companies that are quite progressive to reconnect the E, S and G, the E, S and E of, of, of sustainability. And, and, and that's a challenge I hope, I hope many will be up for and open about. Well, that's, I think that's a wonderful note to finish on. Um, there's a lot of work, but I think it's all gonna be good and enjoyable work. And it's quite clear this panel is definitely on the path and completely dedicated.